Evening, everybody. Welcome to the first official episode of the breakdown of the 2024 year season. I'm not sure what to call it, but I'm excited to be back. We have got a lot to talk about tonight. There's no question about that. And we're going to get into it pretty much right away. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to say uh, and acknowledge before we went on our holiday break, we made some pretty big promises about uh, holiday specials and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just going to own it right out of the gates. Uh, technical difficulties got in the way. Life got in the way. We really wanted to do some things. We weren't able to execute on them. So we're, we're sorry. There. Responsibilities discharged. Now, we have been off for the better part of a month. It's been delightful. We had some wonderful weather. We're getting back just in time for the cold weather here in delightful Calgary, Alberta. But uh, we missed some things. There were a lot of things that happened. We're not going to cover all of them because nobody wants to be here until 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm pretty sure. But we are going to hit on some of the, the bigger things because there was so much fun that happened. I mean, we could easily spend probably a half hour, 45 minutes just talking about the whole Monique LaGrange debacle. She's the uh, former... Uh, Red Deer Catholic School Board trustee who got into hot water because of sharing, I'm not making this up, Nazi memes, and uh, was removed. While we were off, she decided she was going to sue to get back on because who doesn't love their Nazi memes, I guess. We'll be following that. We'll probably do 45 minutes on it at another time, but we're not going to do that tonight. Tonight... We got some we got some other things that we want to we want to touch on first. And the first one we're going to front load it a little bit because there was a a press conference that happened on December 21st. And there's two moments in particular from this press conference that were important enough that we wanted to go back. They've been covered heavily, but we wanted to go back and we just wanted to touch on them because they are so 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 significant. Tim Brooks CTV uh, further to that for the premier there's an argument to be made here that public officials should be, should be setting an example, right? So when it comes to these low immunization rates, do, do you think it's your duty to maybe set an example, maybe disclose your vaccination status and really encourage Albertans to, to really bump up that rate? No, I think that a private medical decisions should be kept private. And I think this is the reason why we have doctors who are giving the advice. You heard Dr. Paul Park's advice, and it's why we're doing a, an advertising campaign. So I, th I think that we're doing exactly what we've done in previous years, and we're going to continue doing that. So your advice from, from I, I think, September has been, it's a personal conversation you have with your family doctor. We're here today talking about how 700,000-plus Albertans don't have that family doctor. So who should those people consult with uh, when, when deciding whether to get that vaccine? I, I think Dr. Paul Parks made some, uh, some, some good comments. We have information on our website. Uh, there are public health officials who are making public commentary. There's walking clinics. Um, I, I think that there's lots of avenues for people to be able to get good medical advice. I don't think they go to politicians to get medical advice, and I'm certainly not going to give it. People don't go to politicians to get medical advice. People certainly don't, I don't know, campaign on leadership races to get medical advice advice or provide medical advice people certainly don't start hundred thousand dollar gofundmes that they then donate the lion's share of money to the justice center for constitutional freedoms because they were trying to offer people medical advice don't go to danielle smith for medical leadership now i guess 
That whole press conference was a press conference that took place because the Alberta Medical Association and the president of the Alberta Medical Association, Dr. Paul Parks, was there to talk about the fact that the provincial government was going to be providing an additional $200 million to support primary care, to support people being able to better access family physicians. But the press conference took quite a bit of a turn, and it took a turn for really two major reasons. The first one was Daniel Smith refusing as leader of the province to provide leadership. Uh, But the second one was because of a news story that broke right before that press conference that had to do with the fact that the government of Alberta, with its breaking up of HS and bringing more things into the portfolio of government, as opposed to the arm's length thing, because people shouldn't go to politicians for leadership on health-related issues, but the government needs more control of health-related issues and taking it away from the medical experts. Boy, this gets confusing fast. But news broke that the government had actually said to the Alberta Health campaign for immunization. It's a program that runs every year. It says to people, hey, you know what? Vaccines are safe. They're a really good way to protect yourself from serious outcomes from the myriad of viruses out there that are absolutely wreaking havoc on the healthcare system right now. You should go and get vaccinated. That's what the campaign's all about. But the government reached in and said, okay, how about you didn't use the word uh, COVID in your vaccination campaign? And this story broke. And that took over the press conference. But the real moment where the the press conference took a fascinating uh, turn was when the question came up about the low immunization numbers. Now, again, it's important to highlight that this press conference was there to talk about this $200 million for primary care. That's the reason why Dr. Paul Parks was there. But as much as Daniel Smith abdicated any kind of leadership uh, on the question of should people get vaccinated, Dr. Paul Parks absolutely did not. The fact is that Alberta has its lowest flu vaccination numbers this year in over a decade. And I'm curious, um, you know, what you think the reason behind that is. And if you think it's a problem, is it concerning? Uh, so I'll start by saying it's absolutely a problem and a concern. So I'm I'm a physician. I, I, I vaccines work. They really truly work. I I want to put this in perspective out there that what we need is more Albertans being vaccinated because it works and it helps to protect those people, but it helps to protect the system. I'll give some examples. We're seeing two-year-olds out there now that are getting influenza and having encephalitis, which is an infection of the brain that may actually be life-threatening. And if they survive, they may never be normal again. We're seeing adults that are going to have need, maybe need heart transplants from influenza because they've done so much damage to their heart. I, I, I want to just say, I, I'm not a politician, I'm a physician. So if Albertans can get their vaccine, there's two pieces. It'll protect them. But our system right now, our hospitals are overflowing with sick people with all respiratory viruses, but influenza is one of the highest right now. So I just want to use this opportunity to urge Albertans and all Canadians. I don't want to debate which province has better inf- uh, influenza or immunization rates. I would just love to urge everybody to go out there. And I'll just say, I got it. My family got it. It's protecting you, but it's also protecting other people that are going to get sick and protecting our healthcare system so we can take care of people. So I I just strongly urge and use this opportunity that we just need more vaccination for sure. 
Now, as a lot of people pointed out, and we did a couple of edits that you can see on, on our social media if you're so inclined, the body language that was going on in that clip, particularly from the, the Premier of Alberta, was uh, a, a cornucopia of tension. It's, it's well worth, worth going to our socials and, and checking it out because Daniel Smith very clearly did not like the conversation and what was, what was going on. She definitely didn't seem to like what Dr. Paul Parks was saying one bit. But it's important to realize that what he's saying about the healthcare system is very, very much accurate. There's a new story that dropped on January 5th. We don't have a graphic for it, but new story dropped on January 5th coming out of Red Deer by the Red Deer Advocate. The healthcare system in Alberta, I'm not even making this up. The healthcare system in Alberta is literally being held together right now with tarps and duct tape. The headline from the news article, Red Deer ER uses tarps secured with duct tape to create more space for patients. The Red Deer ER was so overflowing with patients, they had to create emergency shelters out of tarps and duct tape. So get vaccinated, period. We're not even going to get into the, 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 let's debate the science. No, no, we're not going to, we're, we're, we're not going to fall down that rabbit hole. Just get vaccinated. The experts are all saying, get vaccinated. Listen to the smart people. It makes everybody's lives easier. Moving on from there. We got a couple of broad topics that we want to hit on for our first episode, episode 6.01 of our, our new season um, and we're going to get down to basics. We're going to, we're going to be doing a little bit more deep dives, uh, this year. We're going to try to, we've got a couple that we're, we're in the process of teeing up. Um, I'm not going to promise what they are because obviously with our holiday special, we kind of shit the bed on that one, but, um, we got a couple that we, we want to be deep diving on. And in order to start the conversation of 2024, we figured it would be a good idea to take a look at where we are with the political environment in Alberta. You hear over and over again, the province of Alberta is a conservative province. We, we go back with the conservatism. And we've got the United Conservative Party. It's a party that's made up of conservatives and they're united. But what does it actually mean to be conservative? What does that word actually mean? And it turns out there's some interpretation to be had. We're going to throw a couple of definitions up here real quick because we tried to nail down the definition of what is conservatism. Uh, one of the definitions that we found, the principles and policies of a conservative party, that one's super helpful. The conservative party, also super helpful. But here's where it gets interesting. The disposition in politics to preserve what is established. Let me read that one again, because this is going to be really important. A disposition in politics to preserve what is established. Going on with the definition of political philosophy based on a tradition of social stability, stressing established institutions, and preferring gradual development to abrupt change. Specifically such a philosophy calling for lower taxes, limited government, regulation of business and investing, a strong national defense, individual financial responsibility for personal needs. The tendency to prefer an existing or traditional situation to change. But there are a couple other definitions that we want to go through real quick. 
Because again, it highlights the same theme, tending to emphasize the importance of preserving traditional culture and religious values and to oppose change, especially sudden change. We really don't like the sudden change if we're conservatives. And our last definition, this one's straight from Wikipedia. Conservatism is a cultural, social, and political philosophy that seeks to promote and preserve traditional institutions, customs, and values. The central tenets of conservatism may vary in relation to culture and civilization in which it appears. In Western culture, depending on the particular nation, conservatives seek to promote a range of institutions, such as the nuclear family, organized religion, the military, the nation-state, property rights, rule of law, aristocracy, and monarchy. Conservatives tend to favor institutions and practices that guarantee social order and historical continuity. Now, you might be wondering, why are we bringing up the definition of conservative? And it's because as much as Alberta clings to this provincial identity as being a conservative province, the question needs to be asked, are we? Are we actually a conservative province? There's a lot of old stock conservatives, they're quoting the hell out of that one, a lot of old stock conservatives who would say, you know, conservatism is about responsible government, it's about saving money for the future, it's about, uh, we don't want to change too quick, it's about rule of law. Okay, that fits with the definitions that we've run out. But the question has to be asked, does that fit with the environment of what's going on in Alberta right now? We can take a look at the example of the sudden change to the existing institution that was Alberta Health Services. Danielle Smith campaigned on getting rid of the AHS board, and she announced just a few weeks ago that she was going to be blowing up Alberta Health Services and separating it into four different entities with an emphasis on Alberta Health Services not being the key uh, provider of health services she she wants to use the term alberta hospital services so rather than have that established integration she wants to blow it all up because that'll make things better except a lot of the experts are saying it actually won't it'll probably make things worse and one of the big reasons for that is because alberta health services problems are priority or primarily sorry about a lack of resources that lack of resources not only includes the spaces, but it also includes, more importantly, the people, the healthcare workers, the physicians, the nurses, the paramedics. There's no shortage of stories that go on every week about how there's not enough nurses, there's not enough doctors. There was a big news story about huge shutdowns during the holiday season of ambulance services. This is stuff that happens, and it's certainly not problems that are going to be addressed by the sudden destruction of an established institution. So right out of the gates, we've got some, we've got some problems with, uh, with aligning the decisions of the current government with conservative values. We take a look at the sudden, unannounced decision to put the renewables moratorium on place. Where all of a sudden, with no warning, all of the renewable development over one megawatt in the province of Alberta was said, yeah, we're actually not going to be approving any of you guys because concrete's really scary. Never mind 
the multiple leaks that have occurred in the last couple of years up in northern Alberta that have, have absolutely affected wildlife. They have absolutely affected uh, the, the water table. Never mind any of that stuff. We're going to just let those current regulations just kind of simmer, see what happens there. Renewables, though, uh, the, the concrete pilings from the wind and the solar that's on industrial land is unsightly. We got to do something about that. We got to shut the whole thing down. A sudden decision with massive economic consequences doesn't align with conservative values. We could talk about the, the questions of, of honesty, where Danielle Smith campaigned on absolutely not. Nobody's going to touch your pension during the election. She had candidates at town halls repeatedly say, no, 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 that's not a conversation in the Conservative Party anymore. Absolutely not. We will not be pursuing the Alberta pension. And then almost immediately after the provincial election, Albertans are on the hook for the up upwards of $8 million of advertising money to try to convince Albertans that we should maybe go with an Alberta pension plan. We're going to talk more about this as we take a look at some of the things that Daniel Smith said in her uh, year-end roundups. But going back on your promises, arguably misleading people about your intentions doesn't seem like a, a something that's very in line with conservative policies. It doesn't seem like it's very in line with conservative ideology. Let's talk about rule of law for a second. Let's remember, Danielle Smith was found by the Ethics Commissioner to have violated the Conflict of Interest Act because she took a phone call from a religious extremist that she never should have taken that was apparently off the record. And after that phone call, where he tried to say, hey, I've got these criminal charges. I'd like to not have them. She called the Minister of Justice at the time, Tyler Shandro, and said, hey, is there any way that we can make this go away? Now, there's allegations that have been made by various media outlets that have reported that Daniel Smith also was trying to influence prosecutors. Those go, those are up for debate. Those have been unsubstantiated. There's never been any documented, verified examples of that. But the question is to whether or not she tried to influence Tyler Shandro, the question of whether or not she made the phone call to Tyler Shandro to say, hey, maybe we could shut this down. That is not up for debate. That is established fact. So the premier of the province, as we've said many times on the show before, either completely disregarded the rule of law or worse, was completely unaware of how the rule of law is supposed to work. These are big problems. And it seems to make the case a little bit that maybe Danielle Smith and the current version of the UCP aren't actually a conservative party. But let's, let's not speculate too hard until we've allowed Danielle Smith to, to speak for herself a little bit, because she did multiple year-end interviews 
where some of the questions were asked in regards to some of these issues that we, we've just talked about here. Now, there's some people who have said, ah, but the follow-ups weren't great. And eh, there's arguments to be made. One of the things that people need to realize, particularly when you're dealing with interviews with high-level politicians, is very often you get a very small window of time. We've experienced this when we've interviewed politicians ourselves, when we've interviewed some of the leaders of the political parties in the province of Alberta. You get X amount of time, and that's what you get, and that's it. And so if you try to spend the front end of the the interview making people comfortable so maybe you get a good answer, at the back end, there's not a lot of room for follow-up. And for a lot of these conversations, it's a very short period of time. So I want to be very, very clear. Would it be great if we had an unlimited amount of time to hold politicians' feet to the fire for these questions? 100% it would be. Would it be great if politicians didn't require that sort of, of pursuit in order to get them to answer questions honestly and tell the truth and not lie, that would be great too. But that's not what happens. This clip from Daniel Smith on, was released by CTV Calgary on December 24th, and the question of pensions came up. Did not campaign on leaving the Canada Pension Plan. In fact, on May 24th, you said, quote, no one is touching anyone's pension. But your government has launched a panel uh, to explore an Alberta pension plan. So 94,000 Albertans completed that online survey. 76,000 Albertans uh, participated in the telephone town halls. Less than 40% of Albertans are saying they want to leave the CPP. And that also matches some Angus Reid polling. So why keep pursuing this if so many Albertans are already telling you they're not interested in this? Uh, I think it was important for Albertans to understand. We overpay into Canada Pension. We always have. Those overpayments go into investments that have grown to a point where we are now entitled to $334 billion in that pension fund based on the formula in the Act. That's a massive amount of over-contribution. It means that we would be able to pay our seniors more money and we would, or we would be able to reduce contributions for, for those who are paying in. And if people want to look at that and say, I understand, we're overpaying, we'll continue to overpay, we will send it to um, a CPPI investment board that we have no um, oversight over, and I'm fine with that. If, if that's what Albertans tell me, then I'll honor that. But I think people need to know. People need to know that this is a program that treats Albertans unfairly, and we would be able to reduce premiums and increase benefits. And if they still want to stay in the plan, then uh, that'll be the decision of Albertans. That's, that same Angus Reid polling is saying that 60% of Canadians polled don't want Alberta to leave the CPP, and it sounds like a lot of the uh, provincial finance ministers were telling our finance minister that recently, too, at meetings in Ottawa. Um, because this does, of course, impact all Canadians. Are you thinking about the rest of the country? Does it matter to you what other Canadians think on this issue? This is the real problem that we have in the country, is that Alberta is continually asked to pay and pay and pay, and then we have a federal government that is hostile that keeps trying to shut down our industry. We have a broader conversation that we need to have about our, how our, our country works. And I, I think we're beginning to have that conversation, but in the end, I have to, 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 uh, to look after Albertans' interests. Now, it's pretty wild that she would say that she has to look after Albertans' interest because um, there's a lot of people that argue that she's doing the exact opposite. Now, the follow-up question that many people wanted to hear in that whole uh, conversation, in that whole interview, was, of course, how do you keep saying that Albertans overpay? Because the way that Daniel Smith justifies it is she says, well, we contribute... 
X amount of dollars to the fund every year, but we don't get back the same amount every year. And first of all, Alberta as a province, as many people have astutely pointed out, doesn't contribute to the CPP. Individuals do, and it's based on how much money that they make. And the amount that they get back once they retire is based on how much money they contributed. But saying that Albertans are over-contributing on a CPP because there's more Albertans that are saving for their future than are cashing out from their future is like saying, I'm overpaying on my RRSP. This year, I put, I don't know, I don't have an RRSP, but let's say I did. I put $10,000 into my RRSP. um, And I didn't get any money back this year. Ah, I'm getting screwed. No. You're not. You're saving for your future, which is the premise of what a CPP is. Constantly saying that Albertans overpay for the CPP is an incredibly disingenuous argument. Now, there's some people who have floated the idea that given uh, the fact that Alberta has a younger population, if Alberta continues to have a younger population and it stays that way forever, then yes, it's theoretically possible that we could pay lower premiums, we could get better benefits. But that's based on a really big maybe. And it's a maybe for which there are no guarantees. It's also been well established that the amount of money that the the LifeWorks report, whatever iteration of it it is, many people have said is grossly overestimating the amount of money that Albertans could actually get. And in fact, Daniel Smith even said over the last couple of weeks, ah, it's probably going to have to go to court anyways, because, you know, the feds are going to come up with a different number and we're going to have our number and we're going to have to get the courts to rule on it. So even Danielle Smith recognizes that her number is isolated. It's based on an absolute best case scenario for the province of Alberta, and it's not likely to happen. But what, what I want to go back and talk about is the way that Daniel Smith addressed, in effect, Albertans. I don't want to look at that and say, I understand we're overpaying. We'll continue to overpay. We will send it to um, a CPPI investment board that we have no um, oversight over. And I'm fine with that. If, if that's what Albertans tell me, then I'll honor that. But I think people need to know. People need to know that this is a program that treats Albertans unfairly. And we would be able to reduce premiums and increase benefits. And if they still want to stay in the plan, then uh, that'll be the decision of Albertans. Now, that's only about a 15-second clip, but there's a lot going on there that's really important to unpack. Because what Danielle Smith does there is she says, hey, you know what? If Albertans tell me that they're okay with overpaying, which is a fascinating argument to use. Because what it does is it says the, the premise of her argument. Sometimes it would be nice to have Mr. Kenny kicking around, I guess. The premise of her argument is it's a fact that Albertans overpay. And I just want people to know that. I'm just trying to get people to understand the the truth. I'm trying to get people to pay attention. And if people are okay with getting taken advantage of, well, there's nothing that I can do. It's an incredibly disingenuous argument. And she doubles down at the end of that 15-second clip where she says, you know, if, if Albertans are comfortable saying, yeah, they're comfortable being, oh, they're, they're comfortable overpaying, I'll respect that. 
But again, Albertans don't overpay. But what she's doing right there is she's framing a narrative. She's starting to tell a story. And that story is when the referendum happens, the referendum will be in many people's heads about, ah, we're overpaying. I I don't want to be the guy that's okay with being taken advantage of. So I'm going to vote. We should do our own pension thing because I'm being taken advantage of and I'm nobody's sucker. It's an incredibly manipulative line of reasoning. It's an incredibly passive-aggressive argument. And to see the premier of a province rolling that argument out like she's some kind of a toddler is quite frankly beneath the office. But nonetheless, that appears to be where we are in the province of Alberta right now. Now, there were other questions that came up in other interviews. Global News also did a year-end interview with her, and the question of the arena deal came up. I'm so many Alberta families are hurting. Your government is contributing $300 million to a new arena for the Flames, not directly for the arena, as, as you said, but the infrastructure and roads that make an arena possible. This is something you said for years government shouldn't be involved in, and yet just before the election, this announcement comes out. So how do you explain that to voters outside of Calgary uh, that are also going to be paying for this or in a place like Edmonton who, who didn't get that deal for Rogers Place? Well, I always supported a Calgary arena. I should, uh, I should just correct you on that. The government <laughs> spending on a for-profit I always venture. said that we needed to do whatever we could. And again, this is where we have Daniel Smith, the Premier of Alberta, just lying. And I can say that without any fear of getting in any kind of trouble because she's literally on video in the legislature and also on Hansard saying exactly the opposite. Do not share the government's enthusiasm for other corporate welfare grants, whether it's through the Alberta Livestock and Food Agency, whether it's through the BRIC program, whether it's through any number of other initiatives, wouldn't support giving uh, funding direct or otherwise to arenas um, for taxpayers to, to pay for. That was Danielle Smith in 2012 when she was leader of the Wild Rose opposition. And you really can't mistake the fact that she said we wouldn't support subsidizing billionaires with taxpayers' money to pay for arenas in any fashion. That's just the reality. So as much as Daniel Smith wants to try to rewrite history with her words and say, oh, no, I've always been a big supporter of the arena deal ever since I was uh, hired by the Alberta Enterprise Group to be the president. And that group happens to have heavy, heavy membership from the people who benefit directly by this deal. Um, I've always said arenas are super, super cool. We should have more of them and the government would support it. But she's lying because she didn't always say that. And this is another thing that's important to take into context when we're talking about the question of does Alberta have a conservative government? There's a lot of people who would say Daniel Smith back then was a conservative, more conservative than the PCs. But so far, at half hour into the show, We've already established that the current United Conservative Party doesn't adhere to what are traditional conservative values. 
doesn't adhere to not making sudden changes, doesn't adhere to protecting established organizations and established infrastructure, doesn't adhere to the rule of law, certainly doesn't adhere to honesty. That's the conservative government that we have in Alberta so far, but we're only halfway through the stuff that we we have for you tonight. We got more because those weren't the only year-end conversations that Danielle Smith had this year. She also had a very special episode of the Alberta Update. Now, it's important to talk about the, the Alberta Update for a sec because a lot of people saw clips and they didn't understand what was going on. And that's fair because despite the fact that Alberta Update is a government of Alberta, taxpayer funded, usually comes out every two weeks, uh, program, I guess. Um, a lot of people didn't know that, but that's what it is. It's been going on since for months and months, basically since Danielle Smith became premier. She launched this program, and this program has had Danielle Smith on many times. Usually she's the the headliner at the top of the show, and then they have a couple of ministers on who try to fumble their way through an interview, and that's the program. Well, we got a very special, on January 4th, Alberta update, a conversation with Premier Danielle Smith. Now, I want to be really, really clear before we get too far into this. Again, we're not talking about an independent organization. We're not talking about an arm's length organization. You can say what you want about the CBC, but their arm's length from the government. Justin Trudeau for sure funds it, but he can't make a phone call and say, I'd love for you to do a, an in-depth story about cheese. And the news editors at the CBC go, oh, we're going to do an expose on the, the cheese thing. That's not how it works. It's an arm's length organization. Alberta Update couldn't be farther from that. It is absolutely taxpayer funded, but it is absolutely government directed. And a lot of people were wondering who was doing this interview. Well, if we go by just the, the card that they opened the show with, why it's Bruce McAllister. He's the host of the Alberta Update. That's all it is. Bruce McAllister's just the host of the Alberta Update. Now, I've talked on the show before about the importance of disclosure. And when we have had conversations on the show that have to do with uh, particularly EMS, but also healthcare. I always make sure, in case we have any new listeners or any new viewers, that I say, and by the way, I'm a paramedic professionally. Because I don't want people to hear what I have to say and then go, ah, he was trying to pull a fast one he was because he didn't tell us that he's got a vested interest in what he's doing there. It's basic ethics. And it's important. And that's why... Seeing Mr. Bruce McAllister, host of the Alberta Update, so comfortable with the Premier of Alberta. Look at how comfortable they are. They're sitting back. He's sitting back. He's, he's got his socks. 
And I want to be really clear. I don't care about his socks. But for the amount of time that conservatives in this province and across the country spend lighting their hair on fire over the prime minister's socks for uh, Mr. Bruce McAllister to, to go on the show with those socks, either he's trolling, which is kind of um, gross, given what I'm about to say, or... Can we just stop talking about people's socks? Like, we have much bigger issues that we need to address here. Now, what is it that Mr. Bruce McAllister, who is, again, just the host of the Alberta Update, that, that's all. What is it that Mr. Bruce McAllister probably didn't front load on his program that he probably should have for anybody who's not super up on the current state of politics in the province of Alberta or the historic state of province politics in the province of Alberta? What is it he should have said? Well, he could have said that he's a former Wild Rose MLA and that he worked with Danielle Smith when she was leader of the Wild Rose. He could have said that. He could have said, oh, we got us a little bit of a, a previous relationship here. Or he could have said, and we also have a current relationship because you're literally my boss. Bruce McAllister is quite literally the executive director for the premier of Alberta's Southern Alberta office. He runs Danielle Smith's Southern Alberta office. But we don't see that on the, on the, little, the little card. What we see is Bruce, uh, he's, he's finger gunning, and he's the host of the Alberta Update. So let's talk about some of the content of the Alberta Update, because there's some important things that were said and some important things that were grossly misrepresented. And again... For the record, let me remind everybody, this is your tax dollars at work. This is official government messaging. This isn't coming from the UCP's Facebook. This isn't coming from Danielle Smith's Facebook. This is coming direct from the Alberta government. This is coming from the Alberta government YouTube. This is coming from the Alberta government Twitter and their Facebook and all of their other socials. This is what you're paying for. When we created the Super Board, um, which was Alberta Health Services, should have really been focused on acute care, but they kept on encroaching on all of those other areas, and so it shouldn't be surprising then that all roads do lead to acute care in an emergency room. Ah, when we created the Super Board of Alberta Health Services, uh, we just really, they should have just been running the hospitals. That's all they should have been doing. Um, who Who could have ever seen that they would... Uh, actually do the job of operating a provincial health organization, which is what they were actually mandated to do. It's literally what the province created Alberta Health Services for. It was to be an integrated healthcare system with all of the things involved because there was a recognition that mental health absolutely affects physical health. So having those two things being able to talk together is really, really important because it breaks down barriers and it provides better patient care. And in the same way as that, it also recognized that addictions and houselessness and homelessness are all things that have overlapping factors with other health conditions. And if you can get someone who can get all of those services from the same organization, 
they're able to have better outcomes. So for Daniel Smith to sit up on the taxpayer-funded Alberta update and lie about what Alberta Health Services mandate was originally and to say, ah, they encroached on all these other things. They didn't encroach. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. And they did it in a model that has been acknowledged as being one of the most effective literally in the world. The more barriers to care that you put up for people, the worse outcomes there are. The more barriers that you remove, the better outcomes there are. But Daniel Smith wasn't the only one who was pontificating on the, the healthcare healthcare system. Mr. McAllister, former global morning show host, former Wild Rose uh, MLA, he had some thoughts as well. The problem that all roads seem to lead to the ER. Uh, yeah, spent time there recently. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure many of us have for various reasons. And it, it just struck me uh, how many people were there uh, coming there that maybe maybe belonged somewhere else. Yeah. And how do you go about addressing those things? And, and I think that's exactly right. Now, first of all, let's ignore the fact that the province just dumped $200 million into supporting primary care because there's a recognition of the fact that there are thousands of Albertans who don't have access to a physician. And their only way to get care is to either go to a walk-in clinic, which may be closed during the hours that they need care, or to go to an urgent care facility, or an emergency room. Let's just set that aside. That should be, to most people, a self-evident truth. If we're not supposed to be looking to not physicians and not nurse practitioners and not paramedics and not nurses for health advice, as Danielle Smith said on the 21st, oh, don't go to, you should listen to medical experts. It's fascinating that Danielle Smith and Bruce McAllister would feel entirely comfortable sitting on their taxpayer-funded Alberta update and say, well, to my completely untrained medical eye, I felt like there were maybe some people there who didn't need to be there. From what I observed, without any understanding of pathology or trauma or underlying medical conditions or medication complications or medical presentations in general, with, with my absolutely no knowledge of any of those things, you know, I just felt there were people there who shouldn't be, is an incredibly bold statement. And it further highlights the fact that, again, we have the premier of the province who said, absolutely, you're right contradicting herself. Don't talk to me about medical issues. I don't want to give medical interpretations or medical advice unless I'm punching down on people who are experiencing crisis, in which case then I'm totally up for it. But of course, there's more that they talked about when it came to the question of healthcare. Key, because if you don't have a family doctor and you need 
whether it's a refill prescription on sleeping pills, as one uh, dad told me about for his autistic son who couldn't sleep for nine hours, or if it's because you can't get pain medication, as it happened last fall, and you uh, and your and your child has a fever, all roads are going to lead to the emergency room. But if you have a family doctor who's able to respond to you quickly, then that allows for another level of care. Which is just the fact that Daniel Smith would try to say, oh, you know what, if we had more family doctors, then people would have been able to access the pain medication that they needed for fever. Let's remember that Daniel Smith spent, by many estimations, at least $100 million of taxpayers' money on product, the vast majority of which Albertans have not received, will never receive, and quite frankly don't need because she decided to buy off-brand medication and import it from Turkey from a company that was owned by Dr. Oz's mom. If people had a family doctor, somehow that wouldn't have happened. Again, most family clinics aren't open at night. And if you take a look at when most kids are accessing emergency care because of fevers, it's at night. So as much as it's a nice idea to say, oh, you know, if they had family doctors, they wouldn't have had to go to the emergency room. It's simply not true because those family doctor clinics probably aren't open. That's the bottom line. And to try to say in any way that having more family doctors would have somehow prevented the global supply chain issues that caused that brief shortage of children's pain and fever medication. It's just, it's a lie. It was a global supply chain issue. Having a family doctor, we had family doctors in the province of Alberta. Family doctors didn't have some sort of magical supply that they were able to pull out of a striped hat and say, ha ha, I know that you can't get any at shoppers, but I'm a family doctor. Here's some children's Tylenol. Didn't work that way. It's just more... I'm telling you sad stories so you feel emotionally invested in what's going on because, you know, the, the, the dad needed the prescription and the, the, the parents needed the pain meds and it couldn't happen. And now I'm going to insert the thing that I want to change to try to make some kind of correlation to justify it. But there were more stories about the healthcare system and the problems. Third thing we've discovered is that there are too many people waiting for placement in continuing care who are in acute care beds. And this is my health minister, Adriana Legrain. She did a tour of uh, Royal Alex a, a couple of weeks ago. And a doctor pulled her aside and mentioned that there was one patient who'd been there over 200 days simply because they hadn't done a tax return for her. And so by not having her income statement, they weren't, weren't able to place her and figure out how much money she needed to be able to have support in long-term care. And there were 30 patients in that situation. And there's a lot to unpack there. But again, we have somebody who clearly doesn't understand the specifics of the situation, extrapolating a bunch of things on their own. To start with, the story starts off with, oh, there's this one patient they told me about and they didn't have their taxes filled out so they couldn't move out of the hospital into long-term care. And there were 30 of them. I'm not sure how we got from 1 to 30, but apparently somehow in that story that we did. It's also important to realize that one of the problems, and this has been spoken to by people who specialize in transition care, 
One of the biggest problems that exists is not all these people, they can't get out of the hospitals because they haven't done their tax returns. They don't know what supports are available to them. The problem is these people can't get out of the hospitals because there's not enough long-term care beds that are accessible to people who are on low or no income. It's not an AHS isn't managing it properly problem. It's a there's not enough long-term care beds problem. But again, that's something Smith will tell a sad story in order to try to justify something, even though that something has nothing to do really with the first thing. But we're going to talk about more than healthcare, because one of the other questions that came up had to do with affordability, in particular, the affordability of electricity to deal with electricity prices. And I've been watching this for some time. I, I, you know, I was begging people when I was in my other job on the air to sign up to a fixed rate electricity contract because we phased out coal early. We didn't have the natural gas come on stream at the same time to, to cause that backup. Intermittent power causes these massive price spikes. And uh, we saw the result of that in, uh, in the summer, 32 cents a kilowatt hour unacceptable. We, we can't be in that situation. Not only does it hurt the moderate income families, but it also hurts business. I was up north and I, I talked to somebody in the, uh, in the, in the uh, forestry business and they were only able to operate their plant from midnight till 4 a.m. because that was when they got the cheapest gas, uh, electricity prices. So we, we, I knew when I came in that we had to solve this problem so that we could get prices back down to where they need to be, which is below 10 cents a kilowatt hour. We've got more baseload power coming on, natural gas. That's why I keep on underscoring mm -hmm. with three lines how important it is to have that natural gas baseload power because that's what will bring prices down. And we've got to make sure that we're continuing to, uh, to grow the amount of baseload power as we grow as an economy because we don't want to see those price spikes. So relief is coming on that front in the new year. Now, again, this is another fascinating evolution of Danielle Smith, because when she was asked on her radio show a few months back about, hey, what's going on with the electricity prices? She spoke about something called economic withholding, which is something we had uh, David Gray, who's got lots of experience in the electrical land. There's my words my phrase for the week right there. He's got lots of experience in the electrical land. Um, and the, 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 he, David Gray spoke about, you can go back and watch that episode. It's a really good one. And David's quite entertaining. Um, but the, the basic principle of economic withholding, and I'm speaking, it's way more complex, but the basic principle is when you have a limited number of power generating companies, they're able to say, hey, you know what? How about if we just didn't generate this much power? How about if we withheld some of the, the, the power generation capability that we have and then prices go up and then we make a lot of money? That would be super dope, right? Daniel Smith on her radio show, your province, your premier, acknowledged that the primary driver of the problem of electricity prices is economic withholding. And she did a fairly nuanced explanation of it. She seemed to grasp the concept of economic withholding is causing prices to go up. And it's, it's probably not great for taxpayers. It's probably not for the average electricity buyer. She's abandoned that entirely and instead is now saying, oh, it's because we need more natural gas generation and it's those darn intermittents. Intermittents means what? Oh, right. Renewable power. 
So her entire position on the problem of electricity prices has now moved away from the actual problem and is now hanging out on the idea of, oh, it's the renewables and we, meet, we need more natural gas power, which is simply not the case. Because as long as a market system exists, as long as the market environment exists that allows companies to practice economic withholding, people who are buying electricity, people who are struggling with affordability, people who are trying to make ends meet are going to end up paying more. They're just going to end up getting screwed. This is something that Danielle Smith could fix very, very easily. But instead... She's going to politicize the issue to try to make radical changes to how the power grid works, to try to push, apparently, renewables out of the marketplace. Which, again, isn't a very conservative value. She also talked about... (laughs) This clip I just can't even with. Talking about how Justin Trudeau... Uh, And the federal liberals are introducing emissions caps because emissions are are problematic. Uh, She said he shouldn't do that. And her justification for why there shouldn't be emissions caps was profoundly circular. Do is have a dual approach that we know that every person on the planet deserves to have access to the same level of prosperity and quality of life that we do. And so much of that is hinged on having an available supply of energy and an available supply of food. Energy security, food security are foundational. Mm -hmm. And we have the ability to provide both of those things. So we need to have a dual track. How do we make sure that we're exporting enough clean energy, and in my view, that's uh, natural gas, as well as enough food so that we can feed the planet and reduce poverty, as well as finding a way to reduce our emissions. It's it's about reducing emissions. Mm So we shouldn't reduce emissions, Justin Trudeau, but we should reduce emissions. Also, Alberta as a province, we can provide enough energy for the entire world and we can also provide enough food for the entire world as long as you ignore the fact that the province of Alberta is currently heading into what many people are speculating is going to be one of the worst droughts and therefore worst agricultural yield seasons that we've seen in a good long while. Uh, We can just talk in these hyperbolic aspirational terms that are completely divorced from reality uh, because we need to reduce emissions. But don't ask us to reduce emissions. It's absolutely wild. And again, it's how Danielle Smith likes to present things. I'm going to speak in positive terms about all of the the good things that could happen. And then before that, I'm going to say bad things about people. That's what she does. She attacks Stephen Gabot. She attacks Justin Trudeau. She attacks anybody she views as an opponent. And then she comes up with her picture-perfect solution, like spending $100 million on children's Tylenol that we don't need. And that's just going to waste. But let's go back to rule of law as we head into the the last little section of our our speech on conservatism, our presentation on conservatism. Because guess what, progressives? Got about five minutes. We're coming for you, too. Going back to rule of law, Daniel Daniel Smith had some thoughts about those pesky courts that keep upholding the law and the charter. 
having a, a battle with the courts. I think we have to acknowledge that the, the courts have made a number of decisions that have made law enforcement a lot more difficult. Bail system with the feds, is that what you're referring Bail to? Bail system with the feds is, number, is one. Um, not allowing our officers to remove encampments, number two. And then this decision that just came out in Vancouver, which has said that the, it's against charter rights to um, stop somebody from doing drugs, even in areas like playgrounds and parks. So there, that, that's, that creates a challenging environment for law enforcement. Now, she's misrepresenting the, the decision that came out of the, the Vancouver area. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on that because... It's a whole legal thing, but she's grossly misrepresenting it. But what she's saying there is, you know, things would be so much easier if we just didn't have to follow the law and the charter, which A, is a fascinating argument for somebody who's allegedly leading a conservative party to make. But it's also particularly fascinating for Daniel Smith, for who, through the entirety of the pandemic up till this point, apparently, was nothing but a champion of the Charter. And she regularly talked about how strongly she believed in the Charter and the Constitution, unless apparently it gets in her way. And then it's to be discarded. And, you know, the courts are just the worst because they keep upholding people's Charter rights. They keep upholding the law. Again, looking at her definition of conservatism that we launched earlier, any of the four... It doesn't align with what conservatism is. Which brings us to the pension piece. Because again, here we have Bruce McAllister, host of the Alberta Update and direct report employee of Danielle Smith and former co-worker with the Wild Rose, offering some of his opinions in a completely journalistically integrity -y kind of way. Most people understand that Alberta over-contributes in general. More money goes to Ottawa that comes back, but there's an uncertainty uh, from people about, Ooh, I would never want to lose my pension, I feel yep. like it's safe. Um, why do you feel it's important to, to continue to gather feedback and, and to pursue this option? Well, one thing I would say is that um, under the legislation, you, you cannot have your own separate provincial plan unless you provide equivalent benefits to the CPP. So the, the scaremongering that the opposition is doing is irresponsible by making people think that their pension is at risk. It's not at risk. In fact, if anything, there's a very high likelihood they'd be able to get higher benefits under an Alberta-run plan. I can tell you with certainty those who are paying into the plan will be, would be able to pay dramatically less without compromising the, the support that we give to our seniors. Um, our calculation was that we're entitled to, because of our overpayments, and when you overpay and then it gets invested year after year, you're entitled to that growth as well. We have overpaid to the point where we're entitled to 53% of that fund. And that should be a measure to the rest of the country about how reliant they are on us to continue to be the, the economic driver. But it is also a question for Albertans. Um, we had a referendum that said that they wanted us to look at changing equalization. People are frustrated at the amount of dollars that are leaving our province and not coming back. Well, this is one thing that we could do something uh, about it. So we're waiting now to see what the federal government um, actuary has to say about their calculation looking at the legislation. And then it will probably end up 
and going to court if we're too far apart so that we can get an interpretation on the act. And then we'll, uh, we'll start the in-person consultation sessions once people know what the transfer would be, what the impact on benefits would be going up, what the impact on premiums would be going down, and do, do we want to go to a referendum on this? Um, I'm persuaded, but I'm, I'm only one vote. And uh, one of the things that we did in the fall session was to make sure that everyone knew if there was ever a decision to be made on this, it would go to a province-wide referendum. This well, has got to be a vote of the people. You've got, you've got two votes. Uh, <laughs> anytime, anytime we can control our destiny over Ottawa controlling our destiny, I think we're in, we're in better shape. But we'll see how that plays out in 2024. Now, again, a lot to unpack there. Let's start off with Mr. McAllister's opening. I think most people understand that we overpay. That very statement starts with the assumption that it's a given fact that we're overpaying. And it's not. Even the most generous interpretation of the idea that we overpaid to the CPP, like I said earlier, is a generous interpretation and it's not rested in any kind of fact. That's just the reality of it. But the, I think most people understand. I think most smart people get it. So if you don't, then you're not. That's how that argument is framed. And again, it's very persuasive. I'm sure Mr. McAllister would make an, uh, an incredibly effective monorail salesman. Um, but... It's just not true. Now, Daniel Smith talks about in that clip, uh, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter is that uh, if you want to start your own provincial pension, it's got to have the same or equivalent bevel benefits, the same or equivalent costs. So, you know, there's, there's guarantees, guarantees all over the place, except that's to start it. It's not in perpetuity, which is to say if things go south in the future, you'd better believe we could be paying a lot more. You'd better believe we could be getting lesser benefits. The rules that Daniel Smith continually talks about have only to do with the startup. So if, as a hypothetical, Daniel Smith and Bruce McAllister, who want to be able to direct the... The, the, the way that the pension is managed. Because we need control over our destiny, not Ottawa, ignoring the fact that the pension board separate Ottawa doesn't get to influence the way that the pension's spent, but ignoring that. We want to be able to control our, our destiny with our investment of our pension funds. Let's say that they invest in, I don't know, let's go with the monorail. And all of a sudden it doesn't work out and Albertans lose billions and billions of dollars, the contri contribution rate is going to have to go up. And the benefits could potentially decrease. So as much as you keep hearing this line that, oh, no, it's, it's static, it's fixed, the same or equal, that's only for startup. And the LifeWorks report itself acknowledges that. Apparently, though... That's not transparent information that uh, Daniel Smith or Bruce McAllister feel that they need to give. And then they talk about, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll go to referendum. 
if if that's the case. But we'll only go to referendum when Albertans have the number for how much they'd actually get, which is, again, a disingenuous position for Danielle Smith to take. Because on one hand, she says, oh, you know what? We're guaranteed. We're going to get this money. I can tell you with certainty that you probably pay less. I don't know how certainty and probably go together, but I can tell you with certainty that you would pay less. We just don't know what the dollar amount that we would receive would actually be, which will determine whether or not you would pay less or how much less you would pay. We have to wait for the courts. That's why we're not doing in-person consultations. So again, when you start to unpack it, the, the bullshit starts to leak out. And it's a real problem because yet again, this is something that if you live in the province of Alberta and you pay taxes, you're paying for because this is a government media propaganda question mark effort. But then Bruce goes and he ends with, well, any time that we can control our destiny, as opposed to having Ottawa control our destiny, I'm all for it. Which brings us back to the central question around the pensions. Are you Albertan or are you a Canadian who lives in Alberta? I was born in this province. I was raised in this province. Do I consider myself an Albertan first or a Canadian first? I'm a Canadian and I'm a proud Canadian. I am grateful for all of the things and all of the complicated privilege that Canada has afforded me. And I try to use that privilege in positive ways. But I'm proud to be a Canadian. And I will always be a Canadian first. And this infantile temper tantrum that some people continue to throw about, ah, uh, Alberta, we're, we're, we're just not being given, I don't know, the number one status in confederation. I don't know why we would even have that. I don't know why any province needs to have that. But again, it's all about punching down when it's convenient and ignoring those basic conservative principles that we talked about at the beginning when they become inconvenient. But like we said, we're sharing it around. Everybody's getting some tonight. Because we're not just defining or exploring we're no authority to define anything. Uh, we're not just exploring the definitions of conservatism. We are also absolutely exploring what is a progressive? Because if we take a look at the definition of progressive, it's, I mean, it sounds good. You're moving forward. Definition of progressive, one of the ones we found of relating to or characterized by progress, making use of or interested in new ideas, findings, or opportunities of relating or constituting an educational theory marked by an emphasis on the individual child and formality of classroom procedure and encouragement of self-progression of or relating to or characterized by progression. What's our other definition of progression? Though? Progressivism. 
that we found. It's a political philosophy that holds that it's possible to improve human societies through political reform or through government mandates. As a political movement, progressivism seeks to advance the human condition through social reform based on purported advancements in science, technology, and social organization. Adherents hold that progressivism has universal application and endeavor to spread this idea to human societies everywhere. Progressive arose during the Age of Enlightenment out of the belief that civility in Europe was improving due to the application of new empirical knowledge to the governments of society. So, let's be clear. It seems like progressivism is about embracing facts embracing reality embracing empirical demonstrable things not being reactionary wanting to move things forward and recognizing that any system that doesn't have energy put into it to affect change or to at least hold stasis is likely to experience entropy and degrade if you want to move things forward you got to do the work that's the idea behind progressivism and it's an important idea. The problem that we have in the province of Alberta is that all too often, progressives are the gangs that just can't shoot straight. And it's a real problem in this province because it seems all too often that we have people who are affiliated with progressive movements or progressive parties. And of course, if we're talking about mainstream progressivism in the province of Alberta, we're talking about the NDP, they can't get out of their own way. We saw this during the provincial election where the NDP were more than on track to win and to form government. And then for reasons that defied any logical or rational explanation, the NDP announced that they were going to be introducing a corporate tax increase. Now, we've said on the show before that that corporate tax increase almost certainly cost them the election because it was only a handful of votes in Calgary alone that would have tipped who was forming government. And it's not inconceivable to say that that handful of votes could easily have been made up of people who were pushed away from the idea of uh, voting for the NDP or loaning the NDP their vote, as uh, Thomas Lukasik asked people to do, a former PC, MLA, deputy premier and minister, no less. It's conceivable that that corporate tax increase alienated enough people that it cost them the election. And certainly, when most people heard about it, most people went, wait, what? what why, why would you do that now? Why would you, why, would you, why would you do that now? But they did it. And they gave the UCP a tremendous amount of ammunition over it. And in fact, in more than a couple of interviews, Danielle Smith has said that's the moment that she knew she had a fighting chance because she actually was quite convinced that they were going to lose the election. But it's a recurring theme with the NDP as they're allegedly heading into a leadership race sooner than later. And we got a really mind boggling example of that. Not too long ago, because at the end of the legislative session, there were the bills that passed, but there were also some orders in council that passed. And apparently the NDP who were present in the legislature debating 
the one of the the things that we're talking about here apparently they didn't i don't know take notes or pay any attention to what they were debating because for the period of about two days, the NDP couldn't wrap their heads around the very basic concepts that they could have used to really make up some yardage. And it was frustrating to watch. Irfan Sabir tweeted out a city news story that used him as a quote. That's right. Gifts of any amount approved by Daniel Smith's chief of staff is the new gift limit for the UCP cabinet. Now, that's just false. It's just false. That's not what happened. And one would think that somebody who had, I don't know, been present in the legislature and debated that bill, that amendment, or somebody from the NDP team, perhaps, would have put together some sort of a calm strategy to say, well, the NDP is going to pass this bill where they're changing the Conflict of Interest Act in order to give themselves a bump in how much pay and how, or so not pay, but how much they're able to accept in gifts in the process. Maybe we should put together a calm strategy for that if we want to be taken seriously as the next opportunity in the province. One would think that they would have done that. One would think that they would have communicated that amongst their MLAs. But it wasn't just Irfan Sabir who did this. We also saw this tweet from Shannon Phillips. The Friday before Christmas, the UCP released the new law for gifts to politicians, and there are no limits. The premier staffer decides what is appropriate. We're in an affordability crisis. Parents are not just worried about what's under the tree, but food under the table. Now, there's some people who have said that Shannon Phillips is gunning to be one of the, the, the potential leadership candidates in the NDP leadership race. So you'd think if you were going to comment on a bill that you debated in the legislature, you might make your comment based on, I don't know, reality? But then Irfan Sabir doubled down. And this is where it got really wild. Because when Irfan Sabir doubled down, he shared an image where he said, Daniel Smith has not only increased the gifts, lifts, uh, gifts limits for her and her ministers to the highest in Canada, but also gave her chief of staff power to approve even bigger and better gifts for her ministers. This shows how out of touch the UCP is. And then he highlights a paragraph in the order in council. And this hurts because the whole order is there. And we're going to show it to you in just a second so you can see how much of an own goal this actually is. But before we do that, let's talk about what the actual legislative changes that were made were. Because they're important to understand in order to understand this whole conversation. And they had to do with an amendment to the Conflict of Interest Act. And that amendment defined uh, the, new, the new things, the new amounts. So to start with, for fees, non-monetary gifts, and non-monetary benefits, they're now saying that MLAs and ministers can receive $500 worth of stuff in a go. But there's more. Because one of the things that we heard Daniel Smith when she went to Ryan Jesperson complained about at length was, oh, you know what? It's just so lame that I can't go to hockey shows and stuff without uh, 
without having to report it to the ethics commissioner. It's a pain. So they made some changes to tickets uh, for the purposes of the act. A member may accept a waiver of the attendance fee and payment of reimbursement or reasonable travel expenses if the value of the waiver payment or reimbursement is $250 or less. So if it's $250, they can just take it and go, la, 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 I documented it. If it's greater than $250 or but equal or less than $1,000, if the member records the information in accordance with the rules, then they're good. If it's greater than $1,000, they got to record the information and report the information to the ethics commissioner. But it's also important to realize that this is cumulative for the purposes of determining the value in subsections one and two, the total value of all tickets, invitations, waivers, payments, and reimbursements accepted from the same source must be aggregated in respect of each event, conference, or meeting. So it adds up. Must be considered separately for the member and each individual on whose behalf the tickets, invitations, waivers, payments, or reimbursements are accepted. But... And this is where the NDP could have made some real ground because they also changed the rules for family. And what they changed those rules to is where things potentially could get really interesting because according to the new um, rules, uh, a member of the member, a member, the member's spouse or adult interdependent partner or minor child may accept a ticket or invitation to event if the value of, and then it's pretty much the same rules as for the MLAs. So it's not just MLAs who got the bump in regards to accommodations and tickets. It's their family as well. Now that's the legislation. And to be crystal clear, that's the legislation that was debated in the legislature that every single MDP MLA should have been aware of and inexplicably somehow it appears Irfan Sabir and Shannon Phillips and a bunch of the other NDP MLAs who retweeted and amplified this demonstrably false information somehow didn't know. But where it gets really painful, where it really hurts is when we talk about the, the order in council. Because the order in council is where we start to talk about the staff changes. This is where we start to talk about the graphic that Irfan Sabir actually shared. Irfan Sabir, by the way, who is reportedly a, a lawyer. Here's the order in council. This is the non-highlighted version of the graphic that Irfan Sabir changed. Lieutenant Governor Council amends order in council, rena, 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 uh, and substituting the following. Acceptance of fees, gifts, or other benefits. Subject to Clause B, members of the Premier's and Minister's staff shall not accept from any individual organization or corporation fees or gifts or other benefits that are corrected directly or indirectly with the performance of their duties. Members of the Premier and Minister's staff um, may accept a fee, gift, or other benefit uh, as an incident of protocol or the social obligations that normally accompany employment with the office of the premier or the office of a cabinet minister if the value of the fee gift benefit does not exceed $500. So if they're doing things and stuff with the minister, then they can accept up to $500. If it's more than $500, 
a ticket or an invitation to an event or conference that is directly, um, if it's more than $500, sorry, members of the premier minister staff may accept a fee, gift, or other benefit referred to, or a ticket or invitation referred to that exceeds $500 in value after receiving the approval of the premier's chief of staff. So to be crystal clear, what we're talking about here with the order in council is a change to the rules for staff. And it's the chief of staff who gets to decide whether or not staff get to attend these events that may be worth more than the $500 value. I don't know, like a trip to perhaps uh, Dubai. It's the chief of staff who decides whether or not it's relevant for those staff to go and accept those, those benefits. But they have to be directly correlated with the, uh, the benefits that the minister would get. The minister's doing the job, the MLA's doing the job, the staff starts to approach them. Now, Irfan Sabir doubled down even after that and tried to say, ah, oh, so you see how it is. Um, what this means is they'll, they'll be able to funnel all of the gifts through their staff. And again, no, they won't because if the MLA receives a gift from their staff, they're still receiving a gift. That tweet's been deleted. Most of these tweets have been deleted, which is great because it's false information. It's inaccurate, misleading information, but it's also entirely preventable. And it's only one example of many where in the interest of scoring political points, instead of, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for here, actually making progress, the NDP can't get out of their own way. And they make preventable, arguably amateurish mistakes that stop them from picking up yardage. There was no correction issued. There was no apology issued. There was just the quiet deletion of a couple of tweets and a couple of snarky tweets saying, oh, well, they can still funnel it through the staff. No, they can't because the staff would still be providing the minister or the MLA with a gift. And it should not take the host of a podcast to explain this to the NDP when they are wanting to form government. It shouldn't take the host of a podcast to have to draw this out and clarify it to aspiring leadership candidates. It just shouldn't. But this is this is what the this is what happened while we were on break. And where it gets to be really unfortunate is that if the NDP can't effectively look at the changes to the legislation that again they debated in the legislature and say, hey, you know what? You guys are increasing the amount of gifts. You're changing the rules for how much you're able to accept. You're giving yourself a lot of latitude in regards to how you can uh, determine the value of what these gifts are. You're removing a lot of transparency. And all of this stuff could very easily be used to argue that it's being provided to these MLAs and ministers, not so that they can conduct the business of government, because they should be able to do that without hanging out at a hockey game if they're any good at their jobs that's not okay we could have just talked about that 
But instead, we had to try to conflate the two things because either we didn't understand them or we deliberately conflated them. You could have said, it's a little bit ridiculous that a minister needs to take a staffer to a $500 or $1,000 dinner. That seems like a lot. Maybe that's not appropriate. Maybe that decision shouldn't be made solely by the chief of staff. Maybe that's really inappropriate because maybe the chief of staff can then use that to create loyalty and generate political favors from staffers. Maybe the the chief of staff can then use that to influence the behavior of some of those staffers. There's lots of risks involved with just the two things as they're presented. And if the NDP can't wrap their heads around simple issues that, again, they debated in the legislature, then really important issues run the risk of falling through the cracks. And this is where I want to talk about one of the stories that we absolutely are going to be doing a deep dive on in the coming weeks and months. Because it's coming up real quick, and it gets to be really important really quick. And what we're talking about here is a situation to do with a dam. Now, this sounds pretty boring. You'll hear politicians, ah, hydroelectric, it's got no place in Alberta. We don't have that many hydroelectric dams. And it's true, we don't have any major, really big, like, eastern Canada hydroelectric dams. But we do have some. And they do generate some electricity. And they do also hold back a whole lot of water. And there is a hearing coming in March that everybody who lives pretty much south of Edmonton should be paying very close attention to. This is a problem that's been brewing for quite some time. And it stems from uh, the a dam in southern, well, kind of mid-Alberta. This dam is... Uh, one of the dams that the Alberta Energy Regulator has actually identified as being a dam that could potentially be negatively impacted by fracking. So much so that they've actually put up an order saying that for a certain distance around this dam, no fracking is allowed. If this dam was to be damaged in any way, particularly in a catastrophic way, perhaps, say, by an earthquake, then it could have catastrophic effects for everything downstream. And this is where the conversation gets really nuanced and really complex really quickly. Because there are, in fact multiple organizations that are trying to get into fracking within that bubble zone that's supposed to protect the dam. It's also really important to realize that when we're talking about fracking, what we're talking about is the, the process that's used to, to get oil out of the ground pretty much anywhere in Alberta that's not the oil sands. It's a process that's used to pump water and sand and stuff I'm oversimplifying before everybody gets up in the mentions. Uh, it's a process that's used to push all of that stuff in to break the ground apart to be able to get the oil and gas. And one of the things that has been definitively established that the Alberta Energy Regulator even acknowledges 
is that there is a causative effect in certain areas between fracking and earthquakes. The dam isn't built to survive earthquakes because historically it's not in an area where earthquakes would be a major concern unless you include earthquakes that are induced by fracking, which is why this order exists to protect the dam because if the dam goes, there's going to be flooding in all kinds of sensitive areas. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why are we talking about this tonight? Because it's really complex and we're trying to get you ready for it, quite frankly. But there is a hearing that's coming up that's going to be really, really important. And this hearing has to do with the fact that Ridgeback Resources, Saturn Oil and Gas, and Westbrook Energy want to drill, they want to do fracking within that exclusion zone. And uh, there's a bunch of parties that have said, well, that's not great. In particular, on October 31st, 2023, Ochi's First Nation filed a notice of question of constitutional law. And what that has to do with is apparently it seems, from what we've been able to gather so far, there was no consultation done in regards to the potential negative impacts that this dam, being damaged by fracking and causing flooding, could have on the Ochi's Nation as well as everybody else downstream. There's been no consultation done. There hasn't been any conversations about, okay, so hey, if we were to allow these 510 wells to go in here and they did cause a catastrophic earthquake and it did end up flooding the better half of Southern Alberta, how would you feel about that? Would you have any concerns? Farmers, ranchers, anybody who likes clean drinking water, um, would you have any thoughts on that? None of that work was apparently done. We're going to be doing a deep dive over this over the next couple of months because the next hearing is being done on March 8th, scheduled at least, on March 18th, 2024. This is an issue that is a huge issue because not only does it speak to the potential environmental damage that could go on if this fracking is allowed and if the dam does experience catastrophic failure, but it also has to do with a much larger conversation around the fact that when we're talking about drilling in Alberta, we're talking about fracking. And in certain areas in Alberta, that causes earthquakes. Red Deer experienced an earthquake that the Alberta Energy Regulator has straight up said was caused by fracking. So this isn't speculative. This isn't, uh, you know, I, I heard on the Internet. This is something that a government regulatory body has said, oh yeah, no, it can happen. And there have been, to what we can see, no major consultations that have been done with everybody that would be affected if this dam failed. And that's a really big problem. Because when you think about the fact that Danielle Smith put a moratorium on renewables that wouldn't, you know flood the province and destroy hunting and fishing grounds and have catastrophic effects on pretty much everything downstream. She put a moratorium on renewal de renewable development. But the hearing for these wells, these new drilling wells, comes up March 18th, 2024. So we're going to be watching this very closely. We're going to do a whole deep dive episode on it because it's critically important and it needs to be something that people pay more attention to.
And that is the end. First of all, before we end up, I just want to say, why is it always in this province? Why does it seem like it's always the the First Nations folks, the Métis folks, who have to say, hey, you're screwing with the environment in a catastrophic way, maybe don't. Why is it... Why is that a thing? <laughs> like, it's it's so frustrating. There's no reason why everybody who's downstream from this dam shouldn't be lighting their hair on fire and saying, hey, this is serious, don't do it. You put these rules in place yourself because you acknowledge the risks and somehow we're having a conversation about, ah, maybe we'll let it go and see what happens. That's insanity. Why is, why is no coordinated effort to say this is a really big deal and really bad things could happen to a lot of people? The rules are in place. The rule of law is in place. This shouldn't be a thing. Why is it always the First Nations people in this province who, let's be clear, have been so historically screwed Get in the game, folks. That's all I'm saying. And NDP, get your messaging together so you can talk about issues like this with some degree of confidence and competence. Because these are real problems. And that's it for our scheduled programming, our first episode back of the new year. Um... And so we're going to we're going to go ahead and do that thing that we do where we open up the uh, the open mic to anybody who wants to share some thoughts on any of the content that we we generated tonight. We do this every episode, every live episode that we do where uh, we open it up to anybody who wants to wants to call in. And we don't uh, vet our callers unless you've got like a super gross Twitter handle, in which case then we we do because. We, we had that horrible Spider-Man incident that one time. But, uh, you know, if there's any, uh, any hardcore conservatives who want to take issue with our definitions that we used of conservatism or want to highlight how perhaps, no, no, Daniel Smith is absolutely living up to them, then we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Um, in the meantime and in between time, and you can do that on the Twitter spaces, sorry, I should say. Uh, you have to be on the Twitter spaces on a mobile device because we don't have the technical prowess to make it happen just on... Uh, the other things. Although, it's good to see the chat's been lively tonight. Um, while we wait to see if we have any callers, I'm just going to quickly do the the plugs that we do. We got some FOIPs coming, by the way. They delayed a bunch of our FOIPs, I think probably because of the holidays and also probably because some of them are uh, are clearly poking the, the bear in a big way. But the fun thing about a delayed FOIP is when you get the email that says because of the volume of records involved, that means there's records involved. So they can't come back and be like, ah, but... We never found anything. So we're optimistic about what some of these FOIPs are going to yield. We're able to do those FOIPs um, because of the support that we get from our Patreon sponsors. And this is the Patreon plug of the night. Um, yeah, if you like the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, and if you uh, want to continue us to continue to produce that was clumsy, the kind of content that we do. We would love nothing more than if you signed up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where you could really, like, we've got some people who have set, 
you know, they're living in, in tight financial times. Everybody is these days. And they've set some, a very low monthly amount. But every little bit adds up and it helps us to continue to do the kind of things that we do here. So, uh, plus, we, we sent out swag to all of our Patreon uh, folks as, as Christmas thank yous this year. I hope everybody got the stuff. Um, if you haven't, blame Canada Post because we sent it out at least three days before Christmas. <laughs> um, so, so there's that. But uh, looks like uh, looks like it's gonna be a quiet Sunday night tonight. Nobody's tapping in. So I'm gonna do the merch plug, and then we're gonna we're gonna shut it down. Um, we do also have, in addition to the Patreon page, we do also have the merch things and the stuff. You can get the hoodies. You can get the coffee mugs. You can get all of these things at abpoly.ca. Um, We've partnered with them to deal with the merch stuff because they said they would and we don't have to deal with it. So, hooray. But you can also get the T-shirts. There's a lot to unpack here. Uh, you can get the Keep the Conversation Going shirts. And then, of course, you can still, as we're finally getting a little bit of snow in southern Alberta, you can get your, your beanies. You can get the, the breakdown beanies. All of these things you can get at abpoly.ca, and they're worth doing. So you should you should do that. We do have one... Uh, one person who's tapped in on the the Twitter Spaces, we're going to add them in and see what they have. Uh, this is why I, this is why I do the plugs in the middle because it gives everybody a little bit of time to go. Yeah, okay, maybe I will. So we're going to bring Katie in. Katie, what's going on tonight? Hi, Nate. I had just wanted to ask at the March meeting, the hearing. Yep. Who will be involved in that? Who's represented? Uh, well, as per the proceedings in progress, the applicant or the approval holder is Ridgeback Resources, Saturn Oil and Gas, and Westbrook Energy. The parties that are all involved are TransAlta, because they are the ones who own slash operate the dam. Sonovus Energy, Ridgeback Resources, Saturn Oil and Gas, Respect Energy, and Ochis First Nation. And from what I can see uh, that we've been able to navigate through thus far... Um, the the hearing largely has to do with the fact that uh, there's these two oil companies that want to put in these, I think it's 10 wells. Um, and there's been a lot of people who have said, oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And it's the Ochis who have said you have failed in your constitutional responsibility to consult. Um, it's worth noting, I guess, that uh, the Ochis um, haven't been consulted with but also, it appears no one has, really, um, except for maybe, I guess, Transalta. But in regards to everybody who would be affected by a catastrophic dam failure, the, those consultations haven't taken place. So uh, the, the official parties that will be arguing things, I guess, are Transalta, Synovus, Ridgeback, um, Saturn Oil and Gas, Westbrook Energy, and the Ochis First Nation. Okay, and uh, the government isn't represented at all? Uh, well, this is being done through the AER, so... Okay, oh, so that is the government. I mean, <laughs> uh, and I would also, you know, this is this is one of those situations where the government can absolutely step in and say, to my understanding, and I got to be real clear, we're in the preliminary uh, state of educating me on this, um, but to my understanding, the government could step in and say, yeah, no, that's, that's not cool. But 
The problem is if the government steps in and says, yeah, that's not cool, that it's not cool because fracking can potentially cause earthquakes. And if fracking, if we acknowledge publicly that fracking can potentially cause earthquakes, then we have to go, oh, yeah, and we're, dwell- we're drilling wells everywhere. So cross your fingers, everybody. Well, okay. Thanks Thanks for that info. Appreciate it. No worries at all. And we're going to post all this on a, on a thread uh, tomorrow as well. So. Great. Thank you very much. No problem. Have a good night. You have a good night as well. And I think that's it. Katie's the only one. Thanks Katie. Um, So we're going to wrap it up. Start the new year. We're going to, we're going to continue to try to, do our acerbic commentary. We're going to continue to be very active on the Twitter spaces. We're going to continue to try to do quality satire. Um, and we're going to continue to do our best to, to in the ways that we can hold the powers that be to some form of account. But I want to start the new year off by making it very, very, very clear. It is not enough to simply listen to the show and maybe learn something or not. Uh, there's lots of really good sources to learn things from. Um, it's important to hold people to account and it's also important to hold your own team to account. We get labeled because the UCP overreach and behave so gross so much of the time we get accused of being the 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 team ndp and we have said it before and we're going to start the new year by saying it loud and clear we are not on anyone's team if you behave less than what we feel in our own self-appointed mandate is less than albertans deserve then we're going to say things about you and if you conflate two totally different pieces of, of law and you screw it up and you don't take ownership and nobody else deletes the things that they said when they're all part of the same political party, we're going to have to come for you too a little bit. So our mandate at the show has always been to try to get people engaged, to try to get people paying attention to things and to, to try to hold people to account. We're going to continue to try to do that. We can do that. But you can all do that too. Write letters to your MLAs, write letters to your political parties. If you're members of a political party and say, hey, if you're if you're a card carrying NDP person, no, nothing preventing you from writing to your constituency association and your MLA if you have one or the party and saying, hey, you guys shit the bed on that whole piece in regards to the gifts. Please do better because we've got an election coming up in like three years. So get it together, please. And then offer to chip in and help. And if you're a member of the UCP and you listen to this podcast, first of all, wow, good for you. Thank you for that. Um, But if you're a member of the UCP and you're taking a look at those conservative values, you're taking a look at what those conservative values are defined as, and you see a disconnect between how your conservative party is behaving and those stated values... You can do all the same things. You can get involved. You can join your constituency association. You can write Danielle Smith. Be careful what you tweet at her. Apparently she's blocking again. But, well, it's not her. It's the company that she's paying millions of dollars of taxpayers' money to manage her social media. But that's a whole other thing. You can go back and watch that episode. Anyways, that's it for us for tonight. 
Welcome to the new year. We're going to have a lot of fun this year. So take care of yourselves. And as always, keep the conversation going. Thank you.